You're listening to the Substandard Model. We mix up consciousness with our ability to articulate thoughts in the linguistic syntax. Or a chair on top of a table on top of a blue whale, right? Oh, this is so hard to explain. And we don't know the exact mechanism because the exact mechanism would be far too complicated for us to understand. This is the greatest fact on this podcast. <laughs> <sighs> right, Henry. So, if I was to say the word Everett to you, what would you think? I would think, oh, not again. So, you, I, I, I'm letting you wallow in this feeling of of sadness for a mere minute before I tell you I'm talking about a different Everett today. <gasps> not Hugh. Not Hugh Everett. I'm not going to talk about parallel universe theory. I'm going to talk about a different thing. Okay. This guy, this guy is called Daniel Everett. Okay. Well, Daniel Everett was a missionary. So he wanted to go around convincing people that Jesus is real <laughs> and that Jesus is important. So what he did... Quite different, actually, he, that, isn't it? It's... Quite a quite different different line of work. <laughs> you went a Daniel. real different way from where this conversation started. He decided to go a different way. And what he did is he went around the Amazon, going to different tribes and trying to tell them that Jesus is important. And a lot of them were like, yeah, okay, this sounds great. And he was, you know, pretty successful. Often missionaries are pretty successful. And he went around and then he went, you know, from tribe to tribe, bringing his entire family with him, apparently. And then he went to this one tribe, which would actually be the last tribe he would ever visit. Oh, did they kill him? No. He went to a tribe known as the people, well, the people called the Piraha. Do they the name convince the, him not to believe in Jesus and he stayed The name of the tribe. Well, he, he started off, you know, he met these people, they seemed lovely, um, and, you know, he knew the drill. He went around and was like, hey, that's kind of cool. You ever w- wondered um, about Jesus or God or how all these things came to be? You know, you know, what if I told you there was a there was a garden with Adam and Eve and blah, blah, blah. And Pierre Howell, oh, that's great. So, you know, how do you know? And he was like, oh, no, don't worry about that. <laughs> you know, I just know, yeah. The Bible, stuff like that. And they're like, what, what, what do you mean? That's very important, how you, how you know. The source of your information. What's the source of your information, good sir? And Daniel was like, <laughs> well, you know, just, let's, just, let's, just, let's just hold off on that one after I've finished telling you about And immediately they lost complete interest. Once the second, the fact that he could not answer the question what the source of his information was, they paid zero attention to him. He found this his most difficult job so far. Absolutely no one, no one bought it really yeah. annoying and he lived with them for a while because obviously he wasn't getting anywhere so he was really determined to get this to get these guys you know and he started to notice some interesting things about about a few aspects of their society so first of all they they didn't really care about counting a lot he noticed a, a few of the trade with the portuguese uh, living in the area like they were kind of getting screwed over a bit because they they, they did they they never really appeared to enumerate things or to count things which is a bit odd so then he paid more attention to the language they were speaking. And slowly he began to pick some of it up. He began to figure out some of the specifics of the language, some of the grammar, some of the words. And he spent the rest of his life dedicated to studying this language. Because the Piraha language is probably the most unique language on the planet. Oh, we're about to talk about syntax again, Sam. Not syntax. Not, not, not in a boring way, I hope. 
so Piraha has about 250 to 380 speakers now. I had more back then, but it's not in immediate danger of extinction because everyone who speaks it kind of only speaks it. So it, it, it's a pretty isolated community. It's doing all right. Um, and it's been studied so much, so much has been studied because it's proof of all of these strange linguistic hypotheses. And there's, it's so interesting, it's such a fascinating language. I'm gonna spend a bit of time talking about the Piraha language. So the grammar. It's quite a simple language in the sense that it doesn't have a high, a lot of phonemes in its inventory. So it does, it has like a, e, a, o, and then it has only a few consonants, but it's very, very, very highly tonal. So tone matters a lot and pronunciation and prosody matters a lot as well. So, you know, your facial expression and stuff like that. It's also agglutinative, highly agglutinative. A lot of Amazonian languages are agglutinative, which means that you, instead of like having different words, you often just add endings onto words. And it has an ending, which is unique to Piraha called an evidentialist ending. So they have a suffix which tells you how the speaker knows what they're saying. If you say like, say, Stephen caught a fish. I was there. On the verb, on the verb caught, there's an ending which means I saw it. Or there's an ending which means I heard it from Brian. Or there's an ending which means I've heard it from loads of people. Or so this is the ultimate the science community. The ultimate science community. There is Where literally everything is cited. They cite uh, their conversations. Yes, every single thing they say has to be, by definition of the language, cited. It's an ending in the verb. It's like how we have to say, you know, put an ed on the end. They put a bunch of letters that mean, you know, I, I must read be it really hard to lie with this language. Well, yeah, you know that might be why it's so hard to convince them of religion, <laughs> because to them it's really important how you found out information. It's built into their entire their entire yeah, yeah their whole philosophy is you know how their do you philosophy know that? Is, it's how do you know what do you, what do you mean how do you, you don't know how you know there's no ending on your word that says hey well fuck you that's not a proper sentence that sentence doesn't make sense it's illogical to me because yeah. you haven't told me how you know i've literally no reason to pay attention to that <laughs> so you know that's quite cool another thing they do really uniquely a lot of languages don't have numbers that go up to very high you know, more high numbers. Like a lot of languages only go up to 10 or 20. Paraha is the most extreme example. They have a word for one, they have a word for two, and they have a word for more than two. <laughs> so they, that's good. Three words. That's they're good. Three words. I like that. I'd like to do that's maths with them. Kind of, yeah, kind of all you need if you're. The, if all you're the answers the to any hard community. integral question just becomes a multiple choice of one or two or more than two. Yeah. And and I'm gonna I'm gonna get back to why this is one of the most interesting aspects of their language in a bit. But some of the other cool things is that colors wise, so they don't really have word for colors. They have word for light and dark, but they kind of also have loads of words for colors. Because let's say you showed someone like a red fruit, they would be, you'd be like, "What color is this fruit?" They'd be like, "Oh, that's like blood." Okay, what what color is the sky? Um, that's kind of like water, I guess, like water colored. Oh, well, they All just right, compl- what, what, they compare it to other stuff. Yeah, so their color vocabulary is based on comparison, which is quite convenient. That's cool guess, as right? well. These guys are cool. Mm. So, you know, that, that's, that, that, that's quite unique as well. There's some interesting pronouns as well. All their grammar is quite unique. I think what, my favorite part of this language is it has different modes of speech. So because the language is so highly tonal, oh, this is so hard to explain. And it's really hard to get, and you kind of have to listen to a recording of it. But basically, the tone matters so much that what you can do is you can whistle the language. Yeah, yeah. So 
you can whistle and based on the tone of your whistles it's like you're talking like if i was like if you could understand imagine if you could understand me and if i was speaking like okay. that's what pr has like so you can choose to just whistle a language because you, you can switch up your you can just switch you're still talking they can understand you completely like communication is perfect it's the same language you're just whistling it instead Sometimes the language is essentially oh, entirely tonal. That's cool. It's really cool. Like the concepts don't even matter that much. You can just we can just whistle it. And people understand. Often they do that when they're hunting, so they don't draw attention to themselves. They just whistle it. Like oh, there's a monkey in the tree. Yeah, yeah. Okay, you shoot from there. I can shoot from there. That's yeah, really yeah. cool. Um, also, they have not only whistling. Okay, so they have a humming one which is that, mm, 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 mm. and that's often like, that's like a very loving one because you can do that when you're really close to someone. So that's like, like a grandparent would sit a child on their knee and tell them a story just by humming it. Yeah. yeah. Like that's, and they have music as well. So one of them that you can sing and encoded in the melody of your song is the language. So it doesn't matter what you're saying. You can sing like blah, 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 blah. But if you're singing, but you sing that in a particular melody, which has the rhythm so of the words. Backing, the backing music that. is... Yeah, like the the innate melody of what you're saying is is words, uh-huh. and that int- that introduces a really cool thing where they can say something but with the melody of something else, so you can have like a weird like poetry thing. I don't know, that's kind of cool. And there's, yeah, yeah. they do the, there's like a shouting one which they use to communicate across rivers where they only use the syllables ha and ka because that's easy to differentiate along long yeah, distances. Yeah. Um, but they all these ways of saying the language, which not, not I mean, some languages are whistled, but none of them have this diversity of modes. Future Sam here. Um, so I managed to find some recordings of Piraha being, you know, spoken, hummed, and whistled, and all that. Um, so I thought you might want to hear some. This is Piraha, just the normal spoken language. Yeah, pretty cool. Um, and then this is, so this is a whistling passage, and this is essentially them trying to hunt a monkey, you know, bear that in mind. Yeah, brilliant. And okay, uh, and I've got a bit of humming as well for you. So this is like a grandma talking to her granddaughter, basically. Um, here, yeah, here's a here's a piece of recording for that. Yeah, it's pretty cool. There you go. That's uh, the different modes of speech, and then the the other two. I didn't manage to get recording for, but I don't think anyone's actually recorded them. Um, so, you know. So there's such a unique language. Like they have, um, they don't have causation as well in their language. So like, instead of saying like, don't sleep over there because there are snakes, they just say, don't sleep. There are snakes. Like you have yeah, to, yeah. there's a lot of interpretation in that. They, they assume you're smart enough to figure it out, you know? Nice. <laughs> it's really cool. And um, also, they don't have card- they don't have cardinal directions really, so they don't say left or right. They'll say like up river, down river. 
or like towards the mountains. So it would be like, uh, oh, I, I can you cat hold this with your upriver hand? <laughs> yeah, it's that makes sense cool. to me more. That I like that too. I mean, it, we kind of backtrack to that though, because we say, can you get the thing that's closest to this? Ultimately, left and right can only really give you so much information. If there's an option of five different things, maybe you say the third thing from the right, but maybe they're not arranged in a line, right? So then you've mm-hmm, got to start mm-hmm. doing what they do closest to yeah. or towards this. Or I yeah, like everything like they've some, done. I like it some, all. <laughs> it's all improvements. Yeah, like some languages have like a north, south, east, west thing where they only use they only use those. So like, you know, this is your southwest hand and your southeast arm. But, but yeah. Puraha has, has ones that are specific to where you are. So everything's relative to everything else. You know, instead of saying, like, the, the, I don't know, it's just a really, really versatile language. It's so versatile, but that still allows them to communicate perfectly. So obviously people started researching it a lot. And particularly people started researching the numbers. doesn't sound like of, there's a lot of numbers to research. Well, that's kind of, well, yeah, exactly. I mean, Puraha is a really, really good example of something called the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis. Have you seen the film Arrival? I have seen parts of it, yes. Uh, it, it, it's, it's where they try and communicate with aliens that have landed on a planet and they learn the language. Yes, so the, the, the concept of the film Arrival is that this linguist starts to learn the language of these heptapod aliens that have landed on Earth. And as she learns the language, she starts to get a really good sense of it. It's really hard to crack, but she eventually gets more and more used to it, you know, gets it in her head she gets a really good understanding of it and then as the film goes on she starts to perceive time differently because the, she essentially perceives time differently and then spoiler alert she sees her future with this person and blah 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 and she basically has visions of the future because her time begins to become non-linear as she starts learning more about the language and it's an extreme version of a hypothesis language linguistic relativity which says that your language determines how you think. The language you speak and the language you think in, the language you understand, is the most informative thing about your cognition. Right? You following? Yeah, yeah. Um, so they went there and they did these studies about like counting and, and enumeration and stuff. The people who speak Puraha just, just cannot learn maths. Like, it's just not, it's not because they're dumb. Like, they can learn other things really, really well. They, they can learn logical problems. They just cannot at all get maths. Learn maths, yeah, all. yeah. Above, above two. Like, at all. It's just weird. No, just with, They just don't understand it. It does yeah. not register in their brain. It's like us considering they, infinity or something. I don't know. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It, it, it just doesn't, it's just not part of their language, which is really, really interesting. And... Similar things have been shown for other other languages. Like there are some languages that recognize some colors differently because they don't have words for them. But this is a really, really good example of linguistic relativity. And this is quite, this is kind of cool. It's quite valuable. And now I'm going to talk a bit more about linguistic relativity because I think it's really fucking interesting. Okay. So it, it leads on to this idea called the language of thought. So I'd say that this is a layer above linguistic relativity so this isn't saying that which language you speak informs how you think because that's it sort of takes that for granted this says that the fact that you have language allows you to think or at least yeah, allows yeah. you to I, think I'm, in the f- way i'm fully think. behind that i'm fully so this, behind it, that i think that's true if, that, if you don't teach yeah. a child language before the age of five mm-hmm, mm-hmm. their ability to think goes out the window 
Yeah, completely. So here's some examples of how, for why humans, humans are language machines. You know, naked morats are borrowing machines. Humans are language machines. I must say, we do take that for granted. Like, to learn a language and to be able to speak it at the rate that we do without ever forgetting a word. I mean, we do forget words. I forgot loads of words today, right? But but, Mm -hmm. but, but it's a really rare occurrence, actually. Yeah. I mean, even just so, the nature of me and you being able to spew out a you know a series of words based on thoughts that we're creating on the spot right now, like that's mm-hmm. some supercomputer. Like, I, like I can oh. easily understand why some other animals are like, wow, like the number it's of calculations com- that are going on right now and us being able to produce a varied frequency, it, it's just crazy. It's completely mind blowing, and the fact I mean, and the fact that. It's it's not only mind blowing, but it's so because it's so useful. It's so useful because it allows us to do social learning, right? So it experienced such positive selection during our early evolution, and there's really good evidence for this. So lateralization is something that happens in the brain where you get one hemisphere of the brain, the left or the right, doing something more than the other side. So like we have lateralized our hands, kind of our handedness. So like one hemisphere is slightly enlarged relative to the other, and that decides yeah. whether we're left or right handed. And the other thing that's distinctly lateralized is language. Now, lateralization tends to evolve. It doesn't really occur in other animals. It's mostly in humans. But it tends to happen when something undergoes really, really rapid selection. Because like you basically, you're basically like rushing, and you almost rush evolving something. And one side just like accidentally gets bigger. It's kind of how lateralization is thought of. So you get like 90% of people have it lateralized on the left. Some people on the right. And also, like, you know, our dexterity has also got an extreme amount of selection, which is why we have, like, left or right handed, you know. Things Wait, so how do you lateralize like... language? So the areas associated with language, Bernanke's area and Broca's area. And on one side of your brain, they'll be much more enlarged than on the other. And it's usually the left. So that's just how it's lateralized. It doesn't, it doesn't have, like, a much of an effect in daily life. But one thing, people, when they're doing surgery, for example, on people with epilepsy, they will try and figure out which side of the brain language is lateralized to so they can be more careful, you know, so so they can like, they have information. But people used to think that language was kind of localized towards the auditory, auditory cortex. You know, there's the language is in the bit of the brain, which hears things and which speaks. Right. And not true at all. That's interesting. We have bits of the brain that are specifically devoted to language almost conceptually. So, like people who speak sign language and people who speak actual, like spoken oh, and language, and is that the case in they chimpanzees? They activate the same parts of the brain. Chimpanzees, they have things that look like Wernicke's and Broca's area, but they're nowhere near the size and complexity of ours. Absolutely nowhere near. So, I mean, sign language is a good example of of proof that language isn't just speaking; it's something more fundamental. Because sign language it activates these specific language parts of the brain, and you get. I don't know. This yeah, is, this and they're is entirely I, I mean, non-related to. Thing is, Sam. Yeah. If sign language can come under the label of language, oh, okay. what it is is it's an interpretation of shapes to convey meaning, right? Yes. Or an yes. interpretation of motion to convey meaning, right? Where does that barrier break down? Because surely then you can look at anything in the natural world with your eyes, and mm-hmm. derive some form of meaning from it like let's say hieroglyphs or writing or a chair or a chair on top of a table on top of a blue whale right Mm -hmm. surely then you can attribute any form of human emotion or any meaning to any number of natural coincidences that happen in the natural world do you know what i mean like just a tree that happens to sit in the middle of an island on the middle of a lake right 
I think that what separates language from just a tree, a tree on an island in a lake is it has a social meaning to it. It has a social communication meaning uh-huh. to it. That's, that's innate to language. So that's, that's, the, why that's, that's the wall. That's the barrier between evolved, language and not language. Yeah, we evolved language in order to have better social learning, really. And if language isn't used in order to communicate with people, then it isn't language. Uh-huh. You said this, you've said the, the difference between language and not language. Yeah, I think it's the social social. aspect. Is there something, if you look at something, does your brain switch between social to non-social in the same way your eye, you know how you've got muscles in your eye that focus on different distances away from you. So if you, if I'm looking at just a pen on the table and I'm thinking about this pen and then I turn to a person and they're speaking to me, does it switch area in the brain? Does the way I process this information switch up? I mean, you're sort of you're implying that it's like localized, so you switch from a social to a non-social area. Like, I don't think it's more like that. Well, it could be definitely... localized in area in position, but it can also be localized in kind of like process. You know, like different process yeah. routes. I mean, if if we're saying something that has social implications, we'll be activating different parts of our brain. You know, things that are completely arbitrary. Like, we'll be watching something that physically is just like a TV screen, which is at the end of the day, a TV screen is like nothing. A TV screen is just colors and lights and fucking you know biofringence and all that shit but in our minds we can be feeling the same emotions we'd feel if our son died because you know we, we make things up our brain is stupid True. like you know like it, it, the meaning we True. attach to things defines what our brain does so language is quite tied to the limbic system as well which is the system of emotion and stuff like that so you know we can really like language is tied to every part of our brain not social aspects emotional aspects anything that means something to us um, language is like connected to that part of the brain. It sends projections all across the show, okay. all across the show. Here's a deep question. Another... Okay, I'll skip a question. I'll skip a question. Um, because it's so related to emotion. Yes. I suppose if you look at an animal and you kill its mum, right, it feels bad. Mm-hmm. But is it feeling bad from an evolutionary standpoint, or do animals have emotions? Because I think that's a deeper question that you've had since you were a child. It's like, does my dog <laughs> truly feel happy when he sees me, or is he thinking about food or something, right? Is it right. is it is it survival that he's chasing, or is it just pure unfiltered joy that comes from some deep down understanding of the social surroundings? Like the dog is having some sort of language breakthrough where it's like seeing you, thinking social thoughts, and being happy about that. Right? Mm-hmm. Is it the same mechanism as us hearing something, thinking social thoughts, and feeling happy about that? Right? Okay, I think it depends what you, I mean, animals have emotion. That's not that's not up for debate. Like if a person strokes a dog, both the human and the dog release oxytocin in the same parts of the brain. In terms of the pure emotion, do animals feel it the same as us? Or at least mammals do. Yeah. Um the 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 only difference, I mean, this comes down to what makes us human, right? The difference that I think that is between a human feeling it and a dog feeling it, we can construct a thought using linguistic syntax and stuff like that, using the, you know, the language of the mind. We can construct a thought about the dog. We can articulate how we're feeling to ourselves in our own head. We might even be aware of it, but we, we can think about how much we love the dog. Uh, but the dog's not really that. sure but what the dog, it's doing. The dog, but the dog's not articulating it in the same way. It's having the same emotions, but it's not putting them in the sort of order that we're putting it. We're not, it's not putting it in something that we can call a thought necessarily. Okay, so That's what I would say. So I would say that the bits of the brain that do language, acting on their own, <laughs> allow us to think acting with muscles in our mouth allow us to speak yeah that's what i would say and that and the the difference between a human and an ape is that 
what a human and a chimp is that we can articulate our thoughts in what we perceive to be a logical order right. in our own head. And that and that's that's not that is really useful. That allows us to solve problems more easily. And I don't think evolution selected for that necessarily. I think that was more of an accident. But language does give us so much. Like it allows like we can we can just by That's you know, perhaps why talking, it's so uncommon in the animal kingdom. Yeah. I think it was just lucky that we ended up needing language for social reasons and then it happened to give us something that we considered to be really important. Which is big Which brain is we can, thinking. Consciousness, you know, almost according to ourselves. Like I guess not consciousness, more the ability. I think this is this is one of the reasons why people think animals don't have consciousness. We mix up consciousness with our ability to articulate thoughts in the linguistic syntax. And I think that's yeah, but here's what thing. I'm thinking: what's the chronological thought? Pro- like, 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 it's really hard to quantify what a chronological thought process looks like. But that, what does the dog feel from moment to moment to moment to moment? Like, how does its thought process evolve? How does it go from happy to sad? Because surely there's got to be some sort of, I mean, I thought. can't put my... I don't yes, there there's got to be some sort of thought. <laughs> I don't, I think, I don't think we can imagine having thoughts without them being in... Some sort well, of language. In they, 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 they call it compositional semantics. Uh-huh. So, which is, that's the, that's the, the linguistic aspects of our mind, the linguistic aspects of how our brain works. I don't think we can imagine having thoughts without them because, I mean, people argue that even on a philosophical level, the way that we construct our axioms, the way that we construct our logic, our, even maths, we perceive that to be something that's so fundamental and can, can't be untrue. But even those possess syntactical elements. Like if it is the case that our, the way our thoughts work is defined by language, maybe, maybe just the way that humans' brains evolved made this arbitrary structure of language that we perceive to be philosophically relevant. We, see, we perceive to be logic itself. But in reality, it's, it's just as arbitrary as the fact we have five fingers on our hand. Mm. The, the structure of language informs the structure of our own internal logic. This is deep. And, if, and we, we can't see the flaws in it because it's already how our mind works. The only way we can create a logical argument is through using that internal logic so we can't deconstruct it. But yeah, that's deep. That's deep shit. I want to talk about two more things that aren't so deep. Okay. Okay. <laughs> number, deep thing number one is another really cool. You probably heard about this, but it's another really cool piece of evidence. It's saying why humans are so such language machines. It's called Fockhead Box Protein P2. Okay. Also known as Fox P2. Fox I have P2. heard of this, but not yeah, the mechanism. It's one of my favorite proteins in the world. It's absolutely amazing. And I think it provides some really cool evidence for this whole linguistic relativity language of thought thing because it's a Fox protein, right? So this, this is essentially to do with neuronal development. It, it controls how, at what point our neurons decide to branch. And we don't know the exact mechanism because the exact mechanism would be far too complicated for us to understand. But we know that people who don't have the Fox P2 gene do not have the ability to construct language in the same way as us there's a family called the ke family that had a, a mutation in this particular protein and that meant that they couldn't really understand or process language in the same way and that, and that led to a whole a whole bunch of research onto this one protein you know the language protein the language gene people really got excited about it and they had a look and they found it and they found it in all sorts of animals you know chimps songbirds and they found more more human like versions in songbirds which are known to have more complex vocalization and then my favorite thing that they did with this 
the special language gene is. I mean, it's very differentiated from humans compared to the rest of chimps, right? So, I mean, if you look at humans and chimps, most of our proteins are the friggin' same because we're basically the friggin' same. We're like 98% the same. But the FOXP2 gene, very different. Undergone positive selection. No surprises there. And so if you plant the human gene, human version of the FOXP2 gene into mice, what would you expect to see? Uh, what, is it, what does implant the gene into mice mean? Well, you can get like a plasmid or a viral vector and you can literally put the human, the human strain of DNA, the human version of the gene into their genome. So they start expressing this new protein. Like you can literally go ahead and do that. Okay. So you've put, I mean, initially I just assume it would work there. somewhere along the line, but if it did work, uh, what you would expect is uh, um, the mouse to have an increased appreciation for uh, complex language. Yeah, I mean, pretty much. So they, they found what they expected. Mice gave a lot more vocalization. They actually had like slight problems with their brain development, but not significant. And they did, they exhibited more social behavior. My, probably my favorite thing they found. They found more complex vocalizations, but they also found reduced time to solve mazes. Oh, there we go. That's nice. That's really nice. On a completely unrelated task, that's really a completely nice. unrelated yeah, yeah, yeah. puzzle, which they give they give mice this all the time to just test like how quickly. Dude, they can I think it, that's the wonder mates. gene. That's the gene that built all of human civilization. <laughs> I mean, I can't see another another mechanism for that than they're internalizing some thoughts about the maze. You know, they're forming some sort of logical structure which allows them to finish the maze faster because they've they've got some sort of internal language ability which they now have. That's amazing. Which allows them to have thoughts. I don't know. It's incredible. It's incredible. It's such an. I mean, I. I think this all points to what I'm. What I'm getting to, which is people have defined language as probably one of the not only the thing that defines us humans, but one of the major transitions in evolution in history. So this guy called John Maynard Smith published a book in 1995, and he basically went through evolution and he said all the major transitions that happened. And he defined these as kind of things that like small entities come to form large entities, they become differentiated, and the smaller entities are now, now not so much a thing but part of a whole, and they can often disrupt the development. And there's a new way of transmitting information. So he examples like from replicating molecules to populations in compartments in membranes, and then you go from independent replicators to chromosomes, then you go from RNA to DNA, from prokaryotes to eukaryotes, asexual to sexual, protists to multicellular organisms and then one of the other, one of the ones he defined solitary individuals to eusocial individuals you know back to that's that's back to um Nicky Moritz he defines the evolution of eusociality as a major evolutionary transition and the last one he defined was primate societies into human societies with language language defines the last and most recent major evolutionary transition because it allows us to collect information and pass it on through time and gay and just just it completely changes fundamentally our biology relative to other animals i don't think i've actually been speechless in a podcast (laughs) this is the greatest fact on this podcast (laughs) this is my favorite thing i've heard since starting this in march oh so sweet no this has made me want to do biology i'm just looking at a gif of the protein spinning and just thinking that's just a random i mean it's a really complicated collection of atoms but that's a really complicated collection of atom 
born out of the raw physics of the universe that not only communicates language between really large complex organisms through a computer in their head called the brain but also <laughs> somehow allows them to solve mazes and logical problems better through some mechanism which we're unaware of it's yep. like it's the it's the wonder serum it's the captain america serum that made him a super soldier it's this All weird right. gene that you <laughs> stick it in something and it becomes a you know when we're talking about the fermi's paradox mm-hmm with intelligent life just yeah. you know give us something that flies over from you know the andromeda galaxy injects it with fox p2 and boom we can talk to that guy i, I think that's i mean i kind of agree with you but i wouldn't get too excited because it's much more complicated than one gene blah, blah, blah. this is just one good example of a gene that affects language and then indirectly shows how language affects thought i think yeah. Oh. I, I, there, there'll be loads of genes that do similar things to fox p2 we, we just happen to right, find we'll edit that so that i sound family. really appreciative but not an idiot <laughs> no you don't sound like an idiot i i think you're right and i'm 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 blown this is blown this is mind blowing i love language yeah i didn't realize you like language so much but i can see why because it's so closely I, I related to neuroscience and actually evolutionary biology I think it's so important. And I think we've been going down this route of trying to figure out what makes humans smarter than animals. We've been doing that for so long. There have been so many people looking at like, oh, and it's we this. have more it's neuron density. Genes. What gives us consciousness? It's nothing to do with consciousness. It's just the fact that we can articulate thoughts. It's that we were looking in the wrong place. We were barking up the wrong tree. We should have been analyzing the neurobiology of language more. Yeah, I mean, the funny we, part of it is we were talking to each other so much about finding the answer to why we were smarter. And it was there the whole time. It was us talking to each other about finding the answer to Yeah. Yeah. Like, guys. 100%. What are 100%. we doing right now? I mean, if anyone's sunk a good amount of time into that fact, thank yeah. you, first of all, for listening to that. But second of all, if you've thought about it hard throughout the entire process of us talking about that, it it gets you in this weird, at least for me, Ah, oh, that's a really good point. Like, I've yeah, had a pretty strong like, emotional yeah. response to that because I've I put myself. I was thinking about that hard. That's great. Smashing. All right. Thanks. I, lo- I love you, Ali. Sam, Bye. I'm going to ask you to edit that out, man. You can't just you. you can't push I relationships can't. anymore. I want to. I just if she's made it this far, if she's gotten to the end, I just want to say thank you. I love you so much. And I'll- You're listening to the Substandard Model.